Welcome to Skim This. They're exhausted with feeling afraid, but they also understand that the moment they let their guard down is probably when it will happen. That's the mood on the ground in Ukraine, where the threat of Russian invasion seems imminent. We'll speak to a reporter in Ukraine's capital city to hear what life's been like amid rising tensions. Also this week, we're taking a look at the Me Too bill that passed Congress, with the help of someone who knows a thing or two about standing up to their boss. I had an arbitration clause in my last contract at Fox News before I sued Roger Ailes for harassment there in 2016. I asked my agent about it and she said, don't worry, it's becoming the way of the world. Unfortunately, she was right. And finally, if Valentine's Day made you want to binge romantic comedies, you're in luck. We'll ask an expert why this is the era of the rom-com renaissance. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. On the streets today, I was talking to one single mother of two. And she did say she had this conversation with her 14-year-old son that is, okay, if you start to hear something or if something starts happening, here's the bag with all of our documents. Here's the bag with all of the cash. Here's the bag with the non-perishable food. You have to take this. You go to the bunker that's across the street in this church. Pick up your four-year-old sister. If we get separated, let's rendezvous the following Wednesday at this park. And those are crazy conversations to have, right? That's Isabel Kershudian. She's a foreign correspondent for The Washington Post, and usually she's based in Moscow. But right now, she's on the ground in Ukraine's capital, Kiev. If you're in the U.S., you've definitely seen headlines about increasing conflict in Ukraine, as more than 100,000 Russian troops have been surrounding the country for weeks seemingly ready to invade at any point. Or maybe you've even seen TikTok videos of Russian tanks set to some strange propaganda music. But while the West is looking at Ukraine as a potential war zone, Kershudian told us things feel a little different on the ground. You know, a lot of the time I spend in Kyiv, things are pretty normal here. It's a nice European, city. It's got some Berlin vibes, I would say. Really good restaurant scene. It doesn't feel like I'm reporting in what the world is looking at as a potential war zone. This has been kind of such a bizarre experience. Life here has been very much normal, while at the same time, the U.S. and other Western countries are saying an invasion could happen at any time. I read the reporting in the Washington Post that comes from my colleagues in D.C., and I think, okay, I'm starting to get a little freaked out. <laughs> and I understand where Ukrainians, you know, feel the same way. And then, you know, I go out here and everything feels like you're inside, don't look up. You know, It really feels like I'm living that existence right now. Kershudian and her colleagues have started to make plans in case of an invasion. And even though a lot of Ukrainians are doing the same, the general feeling in the population is we've been here before. People have started to make preparations. I've talked to people who say, I've got a go bag ready. If the invasion happens, I'm going to go to Western Ukraine. But at the same time, those people haven't left Kyiv yet <laughs> or they haven't gone anywhere because they don't really fully believe it. You don't see a run on banks. 
You don't see, you know, any shortages at the grocery store. I mean, Americans panic bought more during COVID than Ukrainians are panic buying. A lot of people say, we've been living with the shadow of this for eight years. For us, Russian aggression is not a new thing. We are used to it. Perhaps no one feels that more than the Ukrainian military. Kershutian spent time embedded with Ukrainian soldiers in the Donbass region of the country, who have actually been fighting Russian aggression for years already. For Ukraine, you know, it's, this is a country that's been at war for the past eight years and considers itself still at war. With Russian-backed separatists, Ukrainians consider those separatists to basically be Moscow's proxies. And for them, all this talk about, you know, a potential war with Russia is kind of a joke because they're currently at war and all they see is the reality in front of them every day. This war for the past eight years has killed 14,000 Ukrainians. The bloodiest kind of phases of fighting are over, but it's still draining. Soldiers still die along that front line. And so the fact that something much more menacing could be on the horizon is not something they've totally started to even wrap their minds around because they're focused on their present enemy. This week, Russia claims it started withdrawing some troops from the Ukrainian border. But U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and NATO officials aren't convinced that this is a sign of de-escalation, and they believe they're still a major threat of invasion. While on the diplomatic front, talks between Russia and Western countries, including the U.S., Germany, and France, have continued. But it's hard to tell whether those meetings will actually defuse tensions. So Kershutian and her colleagues are prepared for anything. All times remain high alert times. There are other tea leaves people try to read, like, okay, the Chinese embassy in Kyiv hasn't been evacuated and remains completely open. Russia and China have pretty good relations. Maybe that means like Russia hasn't told China anything at this point. I mean, things of that sort where you try to guess at it, but I think we really still don't know and all options are on the table, which is exactly what Russia wants. All while the Ukrainian people live in serious limbo. They're exhausted with feeling afraid, but they also understand that the moment they let their guard down is probably when it will happen. All right, let's get to some other headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up. The Olympic Games have been plunged into absolute chaos by this very controversial court of arbitration for sport decision. Chaos at the Olympics? Never. Here's the context. Since the start of her Olympic run, Russian figure skater Kamila Valieva has been shattering world records left and right. But last week, it was revealed that Valieva failed a drug test she took back in December after she tested positive for a banned heart medication. Valieva is alleging that she tested positive because she accidentally ingested some of her grandfather's heart medication, which, according to experts, is kind of like saying my dog ate my homework. Despite the outcry that followed, on Monday, the Court of Arbitration for Sport decided to let Valieva compete because of her age. Confusing? 
Yeah, but according to Olympic protocols, as a minor, she classifies as a protected person and falls under a different set of rules. Russian athletes are no stranger to doping scandals, and that's part of the reason why some suspect this 15-year-old isn't making all of these decisions on her own. But still, letting her compete has ruffled some feathers. Even Shakari Richardson, who was disqualified from the Summer Games for smoking weed, pointed out the racial disparity in the decision. Richardson is black and Valieva is white. And this week, with the world watching, Valieva failed to make it on the podium, landing fourth place in a dramatic conclusion to an already drama-filled Olympics. Okay, next headline. In a historic settlement, a gunmaker has agreed to pay for its role in the Sandy Hook school massacre. We'll explain. The families of nine Sandy Hook victims settled with gun manufacturer Remington for $73 million. In 2012, a gunman using a Remington AR-15-style rifle stormed into Sandy Hook Elementary in Newtown, Connecticut, and killed 20 first graders and six adults. There was an outpouring of support for the families at the time, and even a promise from then-President Barack Obama to help curb gun violence. But as gun control legislation stalled, two years after the massacre, the families decided to sue Remington. It's unusual for gunmakers to be held responsible for mass shootings because there's a federal law that protects them. But in this case, the families were able to work around federal law by saying Remington violated Connecticut state law by marketing guns illegally and targeting them at troubled men like the Sandy Hook gunman. Remington's already bankrupt, and its insurance companies are actually the ones paying up here. But the families say they hope the settlement leads to changes in the gun industry and creates more accountability in the event of mass shootings. And our final headline this week. The three men who were convicted last fall for the murder of Ahmaud Arbery in 2020 are back on trial. Here's what's going on. If you're thinking, weren't they already sentenced to life in prison? That's right, they were. But that was in their state trial, which dealt with the question of did they murder Arbery? Now, their federal trial is underway, which is trying to answer the question, was Arbery's killing a hate crime motivated by racist intent? And so far, federal prosecutors have presented a lot of evidence where the defendants used racist language on numerous occasions, in text messages, social media posts, and in conversations with coworkers. Federal hate crimes prosecutions are rare, meaning this trial is significant because it puts racism and hate crimes in the spotlight. Race was barely mentioned in the state trial, and many believe this second trial is key for holding these men fully responsible. Last week, in a rare moment of bipartisanship, Congress passed a landmark Me Too bill, which is now on its way to President Biden's desk. This legislation reforms how sexual assault and harassment cases are handled by companies, banning them from requiring that employees litigate harassment or assault claims in private arbitration. Now, employees are legally guaranteed the right to seek justice in a courtroom. One person who helped get this bill over the finish line was Gretchen Carlson whose own story ignited national conversations about sexual harassment back in 2016. 
Gretchen Carlson is suing the man who hired her and fired her from Fox News, suing him for sexual harassment. Fox News host Gretchen Carlson has filed a lawsuit against the network's CEO, Roger Ailes, claiming she was fired because she refused his advances. Roger Ailes has handed in his resignation. $20 million. I think we can all agree that is a lot of money. A boatload of it. And Fox News is about to pay that whopping sum to a former anchor woman of theirs, Gretchen Carlson. You also might remember Carlson's story from the movie Bombshell. I can avoid arbitration by suing Roger personally. Will other women come forward? Yes, they will. The former Fox News anchor is now an advocate and the founder of the Lift Our Voices nonprofit. And she joined us to walk us through this bill and what's next when it comes to protecting workers. Gretchen, thanks so much for joining us today. I would love for our audience who may or may not be familiar with your story, can you tell us how your personal story connects you to this bill that just passed in Congress, the Ending Forced Arbitration Act? Yeah, so thanks for having me on. So I had an arbitration clause in my last contract at Fox News before I sued Roger Ailes for harassment there in 2016. And most people have no idea whether or not their contracts have these clauses. They put it in my last contract. I did see it. I was aware of it. I asked my agent about it. And she said, don't worry, it's becoming the way of the world. Unfortunately, she was right. But even then, I didn't understand the ramifications of what that meant, even if I was thinking about a lawsuit. And what it would mean is that you cannot go to court. When you have an arbitration clause, you're forced into this secret chamber to adjudicate your differences with the company. And so when my lawyers found that out, it was a dark day for me because they basically told me I didn't have a case because nobody would ever hear about it. Nobody would ever know about it because it's secret. And that's why we ended up suing Roger Ailes personally, because we were trying to circumvent the arbitration clause. How it relates to this bill is that it's been a five-year journey for me to try to get these clauses out of workplace contracts so that millions of workers won't face what others have faced before me and what I may have faced if my case had not become public. Can you kind of explain to me, as you think about this bill passing, what it actually means for the future of women and really the future of everyone at work? What is actually going to change very tactically when it comes to workplace harassment and assault? So if you have a forced arbitration clause in your current work contract, you probably don't even know if you do. It might be in your handbook. It might be in the fine print. You might have clicked on an email to accept it. It means that if you are harassed or assaulted and you want to bring a case forward, that you will no longer be sent to the secret chamber of arbitration. But it will be your choice. If you still want to go there, you can. But this gives you your Seventh Amendment right to go to an open jury process. Your contract won't be ripped up. If it still says forced arbitration, it'll stay there, but you will know that this law has changed that for you. It's my assumption that contracts moving forward will not be able to include that clause for harassment and assault. Companies might still put you in forced arbitration for other things, but they won't be able to do it for this. And what does this bill's passing mean for the larger conversation around workplace harassment? I'm just curious, like, as you think about the larger cultural impacts, how you see this changing the landscape? I think it's the beginning of a lot more change because we live right now in an employee market where employees have more choice than ever of where they want to work. And I believe that employees will start to understand that they don't want to work for companies that silence their people. We've seen this change, this tonal shift happen over the last five years as the movement has, has continued. 
And then I just also think that other disenfranchised groups are going to say, well, what about me? So this law only, you know, protects people for harassment and assault. But what if I'm an African-American woman who is discriminated against? You're going to still send me to the secret chamber? So I think it's going to start a conversation inside workplaces where companies are really going to have to be more introspective than they've ever been before with regard to continuing to silence their people. On a personal level, what has it been like for you to advocate on behalf of the issue of workplace harassment while not being able to share your own experiences because of an NDA you signed as part of your settlement? What has that duality been like? It's something that I never even thought about when I actually signed the NDA because who knew that we were going to get this far down the road where we were actually talking about getting rid of NDAs too, right? At the time, my settlement was progressive in the sense that I got a very public apology, which never happened before then usually. But had I known that we'd be where we are in 2022, I would have never signed the NDA. And that's you know why I founded my nonprofit called Lift Our Voices, because I wanted to eradicate both forced arbitration clauses for toxic workplace issues, as well as NDAs. Because what we have found out is it's only through talking about these issues and bringing them to the forefront that we actually solve them. I'm curious what advice you would have for someone who's maybe working for a company and they're concerned about how their organization handles issues like sexual harassment or discrimination. How can they kind of first make themselves aware of the policies that they're subject to and take those steps to push or advocate for change? Yeah, it's a really good question because we've seen the power of one voice. I mean, whether it's mine or whether it's a woman named Tanuja Gupta who at Google did the Google walkout. You know, it, it was one woman's idea and it turned into an international day. And guess what they were protesting? Forced arbitration clauses. And then Google took out the clauses. So look, it, it had impact. And I always point to that story or to my journey as proof that, that one person can make a difference. But I encourage people to get together in small groups and go to HR and, and ask them about the policies, ask them to explain them, ask them why they're there with this kind of movement happening now, ask them if there would ever be a chance to have a, a company-wide discussion about it, ask them if they would consider taking them out. I will say, though, that we also have to work on the cultural change at the same time because we still live in the mindset, unfortunately, of the old archaic thinking that when a woman comes forward with these issues, that immediately the thought process is we have to get rid of her. And I'm also working to try and change that too, because it starts at the top. If a CEO says to his or her people below, hopefully her, um, that, that he's not gonna tolerate it or she's not gonna tolerate this kind of behavior, that really sets the tone inside of a company. And I'm working with CEOs to do that every day because the more that we can get to the point where we celebrate people who have the courage to come forward and get rid of the bad apples, that also helps to cure this problem. Gretchen, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. If you had some chips and guac at a Super Bowl party last Sunday, I hope you really savored it because it could be the last time you'll have that for a while. We all know avocados are pricey, but the U.S. deciding the human cost of the popular produce is too high. This week, the U.S. announced that it stopped all avocado imports from Mexico. And the potential impacts here are bigger than just what you can order at brunch. We'll explain what's going on in 60 seconds. Avocados are a big, big business in Mexico. We're talking billions of pounds a year heading into the U.S., 
In fact, 80% of the avocados we eat are grown in Mexico. And all that produce comes from just one Mexican state, Michoacan. It's the only place in the country that the U.S. has certified as being pest-free. But it's not exactly peaceful. Criminal groups and drug cartels have been fighting for control of Michoacan land and orchards, creating a violent turf war. And the fight for this land has reportedly caused some people to try to sneak in avocados from other parts of Mexico and pass them off as okay for shipment to the U.S. But why is the U.S. now pulling the plug on avocado imports? According to reports, a U.S. agricultural inspector in the region received a threatening phone call. So the U.S. pulled out all its inspectors and said, no more avocados until we can guarantee the safety of our employees in Mexico. Whether this ban will go on for weeks or for months is anybody's guess. But for now, most of our avocado supply isn't making its way across the border. So if you thought inflation had already driven up avocado prices, just wait until there are barely any left to buy. How'd we do? Want us to skim a question from the news? Send us your suggestions to audio at theskim.com. Recently, you've probably heard people say, it's time to start living with COVID. If you're thinking, wait, I've been living with COVID for two years, you're not wrong. But in this instance, living with COVID actually refers to a larger societal shift. For some help with the definition, we talked to Dr. Janet Baseman, a professor of epidemiology at the University of Washington School of Public Health. What it means to me is socializing and normalizing the idea that the virus isn't going to go away completely and that we and the virus are going to have to coexist. So this means that we want to be having some conversations about how to incorporate COVID risk into our assessment of other risk-taking activities we do in our daily lives. So today, we're going to dig into what living with COVID actually means in practice for all of us, with the help of Dr. Baseman and... Crystal Watson. I'm a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and an assistant professor in the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Dr. Baseman says in order to get a sense of how we can live with COVID, it helps to go back in time and look at how we handled other viruses. It's really good to take a step back and remember that for as long as there have been people roaming the earth, there have been infectious disease pathogens coexisting with us and making us sick. So influenza is one example of an endemic disease that we have to live with and manage. But in some parts of the world, malaria is endemic. And in some parts of the world, cholera is endemic. HIV is also a great example of a virus that is present in communities all over the world. And we really would have loved to have gotten rid of HIV, but we have instead had to learn how to navigate in a world with HIV because getting rid of it proved to be really challenging. So here we are needing to figure out how to strengthen our hand as much as we can against a new virus that we're going to have to coexist with here on Earth, but it's not a new problem. So with that historical context in mind, Dr. Watson told us some of these adjustments we need to make for COVID are on a more macro level. 
first of all, there's the public health and medical systems that we all live in. So there's going to have to be some changes to those systems so that we can continue to deal with this virus in an ongoing way. So we need to make sure in particular that our hospital capacity is sufficient to care for people, especially when we get into respiratory virus season and we're dealing with things like influenza. So that's something that we need to continue to do. In addition to expanding hospital capacity, improving access to the tools we already have, like vaccines, treatments, and testing, also helps us save lives and makes COVID infections more manageable for our healthcare system. Having the capacity to prescribe and distribute these new drugs that work against SARS-CoV-2 and prevent severe illness, these are antivirals and monoclonal antibodies, we need to create a good system so that people can test, quickly get a prescription, and quickly take those drugs so they're effective and can prevent severe illness. So that's another example of a system that we need to improve on. Beyond those system-wide changes, living with COVID also comes down to individual decisions. And Dr. Baseman told us we're already well-prepared in this area. We're making risk-based decisions regularly in our lives. And one of the examples that I like thinking about most, and it's been written about before, is thinking about motor vehicle crashes and how they're pretty common, yet many of us make a choice to get out on the roads every day. So I drive my car on the highway and I cross the street as a pedestrian, even though those particular activities carry non-trivial risks. And the fact that I'm doing those things mean that on some level, I have determined that those risks are acceptable to me for the convenience of getting around town more easily. And the other thing kind of high level that I'm thinking about is remembering that we're each running risk and benefit scenarios through our own filters. And our filters of risk tolerance is really different for different people. Other examples include eating raw cookie dough or a rare burger, which, spoiler, are not CDC-advised behaviors. And even though we may not be consciously making those risk assessments when we go to a restaurant or to the fridge, we are making them. So how does that work when we're talking about a virus and not what we're eating at a barbecue? Dr. Watson told us we can think of our individual risk or our family's risk as a recipe, and all different ingredients and factors go in to create our risk profile. I gave her an example. I want to figure out if it's safe for me to go to the gym without a mask. When you're trying to understand your own personal risk and make decisions based on that, you want to consider a couple of things. So what is the likelihood that you will be infected in whatever situation? So say it is the gym. You talked about it not being crowded and if it has good ventilation, those things lower likelihood. If you're able to wear a mask when you're not doing cardio workouts, that all lowers the likelihood of infection. And then the other component of risk is the consequences of an infection. So if you are at low risk of severe disease yourself, you are vaccinated, you don't live with someone who is at high risk of severe disease, those are all things that kind of lower your consequences if you were to be infected. And so you kind of have to navigate what's really important to you within those characteristics. But here's where things can get tricky. 
Your risk profile can also change, depending on if you move cities, if you have a young child who can't get vaxxed, or if newer and more dangerous variants emerge. Here's how Dr. Watson's approached that in her own life. For me, I have a son who's just turned three years old, so he hasn't been able to be vaccinated yet. And so until he's vaccinated, I'm going to be a little more careful when I go out into society and take him out to do things. My husband and I will probably not go to really crowded places, especially unmasked for the next little while. But I will also look at the level of transmission in our community. So if transmission is really low and we can look at the CDC to communicate that, then I will feel a little more comfortable going more places, eating indoors, because the likelihood that I'll be infected is just much lower. So people will have to judge based on their own situation. As people assess their own risk, we might find that our friends or family are making different choices than us, which could be uncomfortable or awkward to talk about at first, but it doesn't have to be. Just making sure you communicate what your priorities are, what your risk perception is, and why you're making these decisions about whether to undertake something or not, I think is really important because we don't want to judge on either side. And so just trying to understand each other and not push, just respect our, <laughs> these boundaries that we need to set just for our own health and mental health. We also want to point out living with COVID is less possible and just more dangerous for certain populations, including immunocompromised and high-risk individuals. So we asked Dr. Baseman, how can we watch out for others as we move into this new stage? We all have a part to play in protecting our most vulnerable community members. At the moment, I feel like we're balancing that against a lot of social and emotional and economic hardship. And so we have to come up with some more targeted strategies. So then, you know, how do we balance the risks that are still out there? So one thing would be continuing to limit indoor crowded activities for immune compromised people while case counts are so high. Helping people understand the difference between a high quality mask and a mask that's probably not going to be very protective. That's a really, really great tool for people who are immune compromised or you know live with immune compromised people to remember that the right mask works. The other thing is just maybe stating the obvious, but making sure I'm up to date on my vaccines, including booster doses and these treatment options. I'm really looking forward to a time that we'll have more readily accessible treatment options available for immune compromised people, because then if we're in a situation where, you know, somebody who's immune compromised is getting sick anyway, and they get infected, that they can receive a treatment quickly that could spare them from a severe course of illness and, and even potentially save their life. So I, I feel like right now, there are still a lot of risks out there for immune compromised people. We need to be talking about this and making sure we're all contributing as much as we can to protecting them. But I'm hoping in the coming weeks and months that the situation will get better for those folks. Now, we want to hear from you. What do you think about living with COVID? Send us an email or even a voice memo to audio at We're excited to hear what you have to say. 
The Marry Me Concert Tour is something you will not want to miss. In 36 hours, superstar Kat Valdez and Grammy-winning Bastion will perform their new song, Marry Me, and exchange vows in front of a streaming audience of 20 million people. Do you, some guy, take Kat to be a lawfully wedded wife? That's from the trailer of the new rom-com, Marry Me, starring Jennifer Lopez and Owen Wilson, which came out just in time for Valentine's Day. There's also a new romantic comedy starring Jenny Slate that's out on Amazon. And the first gay rom-com by a major studio is going to be released later this year. But this influx of movies in this love-to-love-it and love-to-hate-it genre had us thinking. Over the past few years, where did all of the rom-coms go? What became really, really popular in the last few years, which is... Marvel movies, superhero movies, right? So they started to kind of dominate the cinematic landscape. That's Natasha Alvar. She's based in Singapore and she's a film editor for Cultured Vultures. And she told us huge studio rom-coms weren't really a thing over the past few years. I think the the last major rom-com that was, you know, released in the cinemas, I think was Crazy Rich Asians. By the way, that was four years ago. But beyond Marvel and other superhero movies taking over the theaters, people also started to re-examine the storylines in rom-coms. Because if you think back to some of the mid-2000s movies, like 27 Dresses or The Ugly Truth, rom-coms were pretty white and heterosexual, not to mention downright sexist. Laugh at whatever he says. What if what he says isn't funny? That's irrelevant. A fake laugh is like a fake orgasm. Fake orgasm is good? No, but a fake orgasm is better than no orgasm at all. Fake orgasm is no orgasm. Only to you. So you're not the only person in the room, you know. Let's not be selfish. (laughs) You probably remember this, but the women in a lot of the rom-coms we grew up with were either seen as neurotic, like Sandra Bullock in The Proposal. I need you around this weekend. This weekend? You have a problem with that? No, I I, I just my grandmother's 90th birthday, so I I was going to go home and it's fine. I'll cancel it. Is that your family? Yes. They tell you to quit? Every single day. Or even just downright nuts, like Kate Hudson in How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. You're saying I'm some kind of mental person? So it's safe to say women probably got tired of playing those roles. And audiences started to back away from movies that didn't have a lot of nuance in how they portrayed love or female characters. But recently, there's been kind of a rom-com renaissance. And Alvar told us that's happening in part because streaming platforms like Netflix and smaller studios have taken on the genre, and they've quietly been evolving the types of rom-coms we see on our screens. Definitely diversity and representation has become really pronounced in recent rom-coms, right? So you had like Always Be My Maybe. I think The Lovebirds also had a diverse couple in the central role. It's someone great as well on Netflix, which, you know, had three women, you know, of different ethnicities. It's really, it's been become really diverse. So now that we've seen what a more realistic rom-com can be, people are starting to remember why they love these movies in the first place. I think there's a resurgence. Also because I think we are kind of going into this very feel-good, escapist movie zone in terms of what we consume. We didn't want to like go to movies to be depressed, right? So I think rom-coms are like a perfect way to kind of allow that to happen. Cue a Hollywood comeback with some major star power. 
the rom-coms that are coming out, right, are helmed by known actresses or known directors like Judd Apatow. So you have Jennifer Lopez, you have Marry Me, right? Later on in June, she's got another rom-com called Shotgun Wedding. And Sandra Bullock also has a rom-com coming out with Channing Tatum. But if you can't wait for these movies to get released, Alvar told us it's never a bad thing to go back to the classics. I like the Richard Curtis rom-coms, right? So uh, the British ones, like Four Weddings and a Funeral, Notting Hill, About Time. He really focuses a lot on, you know, the banter, the conversation. A lot of the film is really spent with these characters, right? And really getting to know them. And I think it feels very real because the supporting characters are also not just props. You know, sometimes in rom-coms, like the best friend is just there to be the hype queen or something like that, right? And I feel like with Richard Curtis, the supporting people also feel real. Because I have to shout out Nora Ephron's work, When Harry Met Sally, Sleepless in Seattle, You've Got Mail, right? Happy watching! If you look for it, I've got a sneaky feeling you'll find that love actually is all around. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our head of audio, Graylin Brashear. We had additional help this week from Sajin Coriolis, and our senior audio engineer is Andrew Calloway. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, check out the other podcasts from The Skim. 9 to 5-ish is where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. And Pop Cultured is our weekly deep dive into the culture stories you can't stop thinking about. Follow 9to5ish and Pop Cultured wherever you're already listening to us. <laughs>